Unorthodox is reporting from Israel, which we're sharing on the show this week, was made possible thanks to support from the Natan Foundation, the Maimonides Fund, and Tablet. Hey, it's Liel. Forgive me, I know I sound a little bit tired, but we just got off a very long flight from Israel. But we couldn't wait to share with you everything we've seen and heard during our week on the ground there, because we know that like us, You're heartbroken and angry and scared and eager for anything that may help you make sense of the unthinkable and unimaginable reality that is life and the aftermath of October the 7th. So this week, we're going to bring you one new episode every single day. They're not going to be regular episodes. There's no banter here, no news of the Jews, no jokes about bagels or Belgians. These are just audio diaries from our visit. Some will be long, some will be short, some will be really hopeful, and others will be steeped in pain and grief. But we were fortunate enough to meet some amazing people on our trip and visit some amazing places, and we would like to take you with us. So today, to kick things off, we're going to Kfar Aza. It's a small kibbutz, right on the border. It's about three miles from the kibbutz's dining hall to downtown Gaza, which is why it was one of the community's hardest hit on that dark day, when hundreds of Hamas terrorists blew up the fence and stormed into the kibbutz on Shabbat morning, October 7, they murdered 62 of the kibbutz's members, kidnapped more than a dozen more, and left behind them unspeakable devastation. But we don't want to rush this story. It's a story of loss and sacrifice, of betrayal and heroism, and it deserves to be told at length. So let's go to Kfar Aza. Before we can begin our tour of the kibbutz, I want to set the scene for you. I'm assuming that most of you listening had never visited this gorgeous place, so before we even dive in, I want you to close your eyes and imagine the kibbutz's yellow gate opening slowly. We're inside now and there are trees and lawns everywhere, and charming small homes with neatly kept gardens with beautiful flowers. There's a swimming pool and a dining hall and a lot of communal spaces because the people of Kfar Azam, there are about 700 of them in total, believe in community and in sharing in each other's life. There are pride flags in many of the homes and posters promoting peace and coexistence and wide paths that make everything here feel like it's connected to everything else, like one giant beating heart made up of hopeful people. At least, that's the way the kibbutz looked before 6 a.m. on October 7. We're going to start our tour now, but there are three more things we need to tell you before we do. The first is that some of the things you're about to hear are difficult. As we toured the kibbutz, we heard accounts of absolute savagery, of cruelty that defies comprehension, of innocent civilians massacred in terrible ways. As you listen, you may want to take a little break or even skip some parts that are just too hard to handle. Listen, I mean it. This is really hard stuff. And if you can't take it right now, that's perfectly fine. The second thing you need to know is that we visited the kibbutz in the middle of a war, which means that bombs were bursting in air. Every few minutes on this episode, you'll hear very loud explosions. 
Some explosions were caused by Hamas rockets falling all over the area. Some were IDF artillery. Our guide, Ken Kotler, who you'll meet in a moment, a member of the kibbutz, is so used to hearing these explosions and is so well-versed in the different sounds made by different munitions that you'll hear her stopping every now and then to call out which is which. Finally, you need to know that we made no effort to conceal how incredibly painful this visit was to all of us. Three of us went down that day. Myself, producer Josh Cross, and Armin Rosen, a writer for Tablet Magazine, and our friend. We spent hours walking up and down and all around the kibbutz and seeing things that were very hard for us to see. So sometimes on this recording, you'll hear Josh sighing heavily when listening to accounts of atrocities or me cursing angrily. We assume you may want to do the same, and that's fine. It's a hard listen, but we believe it's essential. So let's go. Hi, my name is Chen Kotler, and I'm a daughter of the kibbutz and a resident of the kibbutz. And which kibbutz are we in? We, we are in Kfaraza at the moment. Uh, okay, so it's October 7th. Where did you wake up that morning? I'm waking up 5.30 in Porto, in Portugal, in an Airbnb flat. It's dark, I'm waking up uh, from the uh, Red Code Alert app, and it takes me a second to realize that what I'm hearing, this terrible sound, is the Red Code Alert app and there's rockets on my kibbutz, on my home. So even when you're traveling on vacation, you keep the Red Alert application, lets you know when there's rockets. Okay, so you hear this, 5.30 in the morning. I, I have the application because May 2023, we had like a five days of huge escalation here, 1,300 rockets, and I had to travel a lot. So when you travel, you have to have the application because you can't know when there's rockets above your head. So I'm listening to the, I hear the sound, I open the phone and immediately I see a photograph that my father sent from the field. This is where we exercise every other day in the morning. We do our sport walking in the fields. We really, really like it. And I see the interception of the Iron Dome. And he recording me a message saying, Chen, you never, we never experiencing such a shower of rockets. And we've been in under rockets and under interception of Iron Dome many, many times in our life because we're outside every morning. I call him and I say, Abba, Daddy, run home, run to the closest secure room. And my sister, who's her house just by the, by the kibbutz fence, the west fence, the closest to Gaza, is calling a security officer to come take my father from the fields. The, my father gets home, he, give, he, he calls me. While he's right here, where you see in his house, taking his, his sneakers off, uh, he calls me and, he, and, and we start to talk and I tell him, did Shachar, our friends, Shachar is our security officer, he's my neighbor, he's married to my best friend, the, who grew up with me, and he is like a son to my father. I asked him, did Shachar came to take you? He said, no, Avi came. Avi is the deputy of the security officer of Shachar. And I asked him, how come? He said, Avi said, there's a suspicious infiltration of a terror squad in a paraglide event. The second my father said it, I hear Arabic speaking and guns shooting around. Now I'm in my pajama, dark outside. I'm starting to scream to my father, run to the secure room and lock the door. And there's gunfire everywhere. 
It's quarter to seven in the morning. His neighbor who lives right over there was already murdered. Altogether, 11 people were murdered around this lawn on October 7th, all in the first few hours. And with each one of them, I had a relationship. And this is one of the most difficult things that happened to us because we are a close community. Kibbutz is like a big tribe. You know the people. There were 955 people in the kibbutz. 600 were here. Out of the 63 that we lost, we know them personally. So really, Avi brings my father with the club car and he brings him there. This is my father's house. This is the stairs. Uh, on the left side, you can see the family sign. I don't know. I can't see it here. You see this said 11 and 10? This yeah. is my father's house. He's there taking the shoes off. His neighbor here, he's already murdered. This is, by the way, signs of the of the Akhzarit that came later on. So I can tell you here, a, a dear woman who used to do catering for my events and did the bar mitzvah of my nephew in August was murdered with her daughter. Over there, this person who is a genius, one of the first IBM workers in Israel, put his daughters in the secure room and was murdered on the way to the secure room. Over here, a dear friend that her daughter was murdered. Lozital. That her daughter, over here, a friend that her daughter was murdered in the Sinai Desert. You remember on Sukkot? Yes. She was murdered. No, it's not Sal. <laughs> it sounds like a... Like Margema. <laughs> like a mortar? Like a mortar, yeah. Um, right by the Miklat, I think. So. Yeah, we were right by the Miklat and they open all the, all the secure rooms. Yep. Uh, all the shelters. Um, her daughter was murdered, I think it was 12 years ago. You remember that there was this event in, uh, in Sinai Desert? Yes. That there was a terror attack mm -hmm. and a lot of Israeli were uh, mm -hmm. murdered there. Yep. So her daughter was murdered in Sinai and she was murdered with her husband here. Over here, my dear friend, with her husband and her son, were murdered in the secure room. She was my neighbor for many, many, many years. She was my next door neighbor and I love her dearly. And she was a nurse. Over there, in this house, uh, my friend from my, from my class, who was with me from kindergarten age, was, uh, this is IDF artillery. Um, my, my friend there, who grew up with me, and we even, even our sons are the same age, was murdered with, um, with her husband. Uh, after he was uh, fighting, and, and they say managed to kill uh, with a kitchen knife, um, a terrorist that uh, infiltrated their house. So by, by quarter to seven in the morning, this place, and we see it in the videos, in the GoPro that uh, they, they took pictures, this place, is like infested with lots of terrorists. The, someone estimated, and there's no IDF clear uh, investigation yet, you, we all know why, 
um, because they're still fighting in Gaza. So the, the estimation is that from 6.30, there were already between 70 to 100 artillery. Between 6.30, there were already between 70 to 120 terrorists in the kibbutz. In the kibbutz alone. In the kibbutz alone. Our first responder squad is 16 well-trained, devoted, young men, kibbutz members. That this is their reserve duty. All killed? No, not all of them. But they were he doing heroic, heroic things. Not just them, also other people in the kibbutz. People, we were saved because of heroism of few. And the battles here were, were totally crazy. My friend here was... Okay. <laughs> Noon time is always uh, very uh, cheerful here. There's lots of... Uh, <laughs> a lot of action. Yeah, lots Fireworks. of action. But uh, by now you can tell just by the sound what's, what's Hamas and what's IDF. Yeah, I'm not always 100% uh, correct, but I want to say that also my son, who is now 24, knew very early in his life to know if it's a motor shell or if it's a sam rocket, yeah. if it's inside a kibbutz fence or it's somewhere in the fields, according the um, the volume of the in, and the intensity of the explosion. So what I'm saying that at um, 7.30 in the morning, this whole place is full of people. Everywhere the remains of the fighting. Um, really, everywhere, everywhere. Uh, if you go there... Yeah, it's really crazy today. About my friend, the, the house we passed, she was part of the emergency team. For many, many years, our, our security uh, concept was that whenever there's an escalation, the management, the day-to-day -day management of the kibbutz is going to our emergency team, which is um, a command. This is a, a it's the, it's the um, chopper shooting. You hear the exit. Just fired a rocket or something. Yeah. Yes. <sighs> Guys, if it's too much for you, let me know. No, absolutely not. <laughs> So my friend who lives there, she's part of the emergency team. Our concept is, is, our security concept is built on two things. One is our emergency team. There's the security officer, my neighbor, Shachar, and he's a first responder unit. That they are the first to come until the military will come and, and do its job, do its work when it's needed. And on the civilian side, we have the social worker, a paramedic, and a volunteer. And my friend who volunteered there, she's doing the data. She's the one that sent us text messages. It's safe to go outside. Nobody got wounded. The rocket fell there. There's no damage. It's uh, the road is closed. The road is open. No train. There is train. All the thing that, you know, we live in between these escalations, okay, be between war and no war for many, many years, from 2001. And she's very um, central in what she's doing because she's a line of information. The last time, she was seen on her WhatsApp was 7.23 in the morning, October 7th. 
And we never got the message saying the kibbutz is infiltrated on multiple places by vicious, cruel Hamas terrorists. We never got this message because she was killed so early into the battle. So she, all left the, she left her house immediately to go she, see what was going she, on. She, she not. She used to do it from her. She can do it from her house. All the system is that is like this. That you can also do it from other places. Uh, and and she didn't. Uh, she was murdered very very early uh, this morning. Um, so all the communication was with uh, text messages. Um, so over there, it's like the members club, and out of the dining room, there's the headquarters, the Hamal, which is the office of our security officer, and, uh, and they have all the maps and everything. And when there's emergency, so all this emergency team gathered there. In the morning, one of the places they immediately took the terrorists was this place. And heavy, heavy battles were fought there. While they're standing, on the roof of this house, on the roof of the community center, and they have like an overview of all the layout. Uh, so all this area, everywhere, there was like massive, massive fighting. Terrorists everywhere. Uh, so they came immediately to two places, the headquarter, and the weapon storage, the armory, which is next to my house. Which they knew exactly where things were. They knew exactly where things were. They, they came very, very well prepared. And from the investigation, the video of the investigation, you see how it was. There's a terrorist say, saying, our mission was Kfaraza. Somebody came with a motorcycle. He, he, uh, with explosive, he opened the gate. Then he left. Then my squad is saying, then my squad came inside. The, the instruction was to kill whoever, to kill as much as you can. And he's saying, and, and the uh, investigator asked him, but there's women and children. He said, no, they're also soldiers. We were told that everybody is soldiers, kill whoever you can. And then he started to, to describe. I came to the first house. We came to the first house. There's nobody there. Then we see somebody with a hose watering the garden, which is something so ordinary to do in a kibbutz, so on, kibbutz on, on Saturday morning. I do it also. And we killed him. And then we go to the next house and we see this woman and she's in her kitchen and we kill her. And then we go to another house and, and then he, he, he really described how they go from one house to another. And then he said they took a break. And this is something so amazing in so many houses, they just took a break. You know, they fought, they kill. And then they, he said one and a half hour, we open the laptop and we watch the news, what's happening and we eat. And then we continue, and then he described the fight, of course, with the IDF soldiers that were already here. Eventually, they, they um, surrendered, the terrorists surrendered, but uh, they came very, very well pre prepared with maps of the kibbutz, knowing where to locate their people, getting instruction during the fight, getting all the time instruction. <sighs> what can I say? It's heartbreaking. This is a IDF. We're getting closer now. This is the highest point of the kibbutz. And we're getting closer now to, to the border of the kibbutz, to the fence of the kibbutz and to the border with Gaza. What you see in front of you, you already know this, your army. You remember? This is, the, this is Gaza. This is... The Sajaya? Sajaya, yeah, it's part. Okay. Gaza city is over there. Sajaya here. And then Jibalia. 
uh, the menorah over there. Yes, the menorah and the flag were, were put in uh, on Thursday. So around 8.30, my uh, sister, whose her house is the closest to the, to the Gaza side, to the west side, sent a message, the terrorist is in my house. And from that second, until she was rescued, me, my sister in Portugal and all her friends trying to do whatever we can to save her, to direct forces to save my sister. We opened the laptop, I connect the kibbutz management, the one that can be connected, and we started to collect database. Who's in the kibbutz? Who was rescued? Who is wounded? Try to get in touch with whoever we can from Gilad Kariv, the MK, the, mm -hmm. the Knesset member, right. who is a family friend. From, from 8.30, I'm on going on the phone all the time for him to help us on the other side. From commentators, Tal Levram from uh, Arut Stein, all the time trying to please help us, please direct the forces. Sending... I have a very stupid question to ask, and I'm sorry to have to ask it, but what are you feeling when you're in Portugal and this is going on? No feeling, no thoughts. I'm like a horse that his eyes are covered. There's only one task, save people. For 48 hours, save people, hardly eating, Hardly going to the restroom, not drinking all the time, safe people. I know these people because I'm away and I have the maps of the kibbutz. At a certain point, we go into the um, uh, map storage. You know, maps have royalties and things. We get the maps of all the names of the houses and the numbers. And we're trying to communicate it to the soldier through our management, okay? So I know already because I know from the WhatsApp group where the terrorists are, we're trying to direct the forces to the places. I know where is already death past, death pavement, death neighborhood. I know where people are dying because they're wounded and they need medical uh, uh, care SAP. Just from the WhatsApp? Just from the WhatsApp messages group. Messages and, and kind of like looking at those and looking at the maps and sort of triangulating who's who and where, where's Ex where. Exactly, looking from an, an overall uh, look, and it's not just me, there's few other people in the kibbutz that sees that and do exactly the same with their people, with another people. So we are trying to direct forces around 9.30, 9.20. My father in his house, he hears something that sounds like an armed vehicle, like a tank. He goes outside of the house, stand in front of the lawn, spreading his leg and his hands up in the air and stopping the armed vehicle. They're all, slowly, it's an armed vehicle, you can't just open the... the <laughs> Roll down the window, yeah. like, oh, hey. Yeah. He's waiting for them, he said, that I look, as slowly, 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 the, the, the roof is being lifted up, and he tells them, my daughter has terrorists in her house, let me go in with you and we go save her. And they start go. This morning I heard the story from somebody else from the kibbutz point of view when he heard it. And he does and he described me that it's outside his house. And he, the armed vehicle comes and he said, all right, we're going to be saved. And then the armed vehicle gets 
four RPG and stops. And this is today, this morning, two hours ago, he tell me his story that it's outside his house and he see the armed vehicle and he doesn't understand why they stop. And what he doesn't know that my father is inside. And then he said at a certain point, they start drive away from his house to the other neighborhood. And I said, yes, because they got a command from their commander to return the civilians, meaning my father, to his house. So my, from that point, around 10.30 in the morning, we lost communication with my, my dad. No electricity, no Wi-Fi, no water. He was there, 78 years old, in his secure room, by himself. And when he comes to back after they returned him, he look at the house and the whole house is a mess. And he's saying to himself, how come my grandchildren came here and did all this mess? He doesn't realize that while he was in the armed vehicle, the terrorist came to the house. So two times already, three times he was saved. One in the fields when Avi, yeah. uh, God rest his soul, came and uh, fetched him from the field. Then when I heard the terrorist right outside his house and I told him to run to the secure room. And then when they took him on the armed vehicle and he wasn't in the house when they came. So we could, the, the morning continue and we hear more and more. And by 9.30, I said, we already four laptops in Portugal, uh, trying to map the kibbutz, trying to direct whoever we can to come help. And like I said, there are other people in the kibbutz doing exactly the same from the secure room or people who weren't here in the kibbutz. We already understand that something is extreme happening here. At 9.30, I said to my friend there, look, there's no first responders from the kibbutz. There's no emergency team. And there's no military base in Nachalos. Because nobody is responding. Yeah. All the protocols that we trained throughout the years, nothing is working. And then I understand that we're on our own. And since then, until today, this is one of the main feelings we have. You ask me, how do I feel? that we're on our own. So like uh, the estimation is that uh, one of the paraglide landed here. The neighborhood we've been and we saw the death pass was on the left side, right over there. Here again, a friend of mine and her son, he was an officer in the military, also murdered. They, they came here, there was terrible fighting here. You can see for yourself. The people here, by the way, they survived. And we continue here. And the person who lived here and did this paradise garden, his name is Eliyahu, and he did not survive, unfortunately. And over here is uh, the house of the twins. Um, and one of the most terrible thing is that the parents were killed fairly early on 7th of October, and the kids were left to cry for over 12 hours. And there were terrorists in the house for over 12 hours in this house right there. And the neighbors heard it, tried to give help couldn't and couldn't. And this is the way they um, ambushed the soldiers. Because whenever a soldier heard the babies, they're trying to come and, uh, and uh, rescue the babies. 
and then they fucking use them as bait exactly exactly and, and when you go around you 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 can't explain how it's possible that this house they survived and the house over there will go from the other side in a second they survived there's no there's no rationality here. The other thing I want to tell you about what happened here on October 7th is that we as people, we, as much as we multitasking and multi-channels, we still like a, a narrative. Yeah, I like the, the Palestinian narrative or the Israeli narrative, or I like a left narrative or right or democratic or Republican, but this story, the amount of point of view and stories that we have, it's a non-linear story. It's a non-linear event. Even if we take all the WhatsApp group and all the experiences of people, you still can't get one coherent story with beginning, middle, and end. And I think this is one of the ways for me to understand and to see the magnitude of this event. Because there's no one stories. So many people faced such a horrible thing. So many soldiers here face such a horrible thing. It's like beyond script writing. Yeah. This is the house. The babies were here. Terrorists there. Our mayor, who was a visionary person, his name was Zafir Lipstein. He was living here. The minute we heard about they heard about the infiltration. He ran from here to the weapon storage, to the armory next to my house. Came with a weapon. Another one from the first responder spot sent the location that the terrorists are here. And they shot him from there. So he was a true visionary person who died, uh, who died hero, protecting us. You can see everything around you. There's still Sukkot. Oh, wow. Here there were terrorists inside. Um, a mortar fell inside. One of our founders was inside and she is alive. Wow. It's unbelievable. And she was by herself. What's life like after this? It's a very, very complicated question, and I think it has a lot of answers. No, well, there's no right and wrong here. Um, from what I hear in my community, people say, some people say, like my friends who are going to move in today, they will be the first people who come to the kibbutz, they say, this is our home, we're coming. Uh, we're, we're not willing to continue to be uh, wanderers and refugees in our country. They don't have kids, it's different. Some people say, I'm not coming back. I'm not going to put my kids in any risk. Other people say, I won't come back because my friends, the blood is in our gardens everywhere. So many of our friends got murdered, 62 of them. I don't want to live in a place like this. 
Others said, because of the people that were murdered here, because of our friends and family, we must come back and renew the kibbutz. For their memory, for the sake of our country, we have to come and renew our community. I, personally, I don't know yet. I don't know I'm to commit. It depends on my family, it depends on how I will feel. It's just nine weeks passed since this terrible day. So many things open, so many frontiers that you have to cope. Um, Trauma-wise, mental-wise, um, housing, uh, financial, your work, your job, you have to like, your, your life were reset, like hard reset when you go to the computer uh, technician and he resets everything, the bios. This is our life. The bios is recent. It's IDF until the <laughs> So nobody, nobody really know. I can tell you. And some people say I will come back when I won't need a secure room. So many people, so many opinions, so many feeling. People are still very much stirred. We just finished the Shloshim round. Sixty-two people. The Shloshim round. Uh, 10 days ago. So the wound is still bleeding. It's not something that we say we're healed. Uh, for me personally, some days I think, okay, I have this beautiful garden. And this is I'm, your house. This is my house. And I'm, and I'm tired. And I want to go back. And on the other end, I think about the people who died in my garden my friends um, and I'm also a little tired you know from 2001 and especially from 2008 where a, a friend Jimmy Kedoshim were murdered by from a motor shell attack I've been carrying the burden of everybody for so many years and I trusted everybody that when I need them they will be there for me and they are not they are not I have to restart everything with my ten fingers and I'm very angry, very angry. They were not showing up for my family and for my community on the 7th and they are still not showing up for me now. Tell, tell us more about this. About what? what? What should have happened that didn't happen? First of all, my expectation is that the government of Israel will bow down and say we're sorry. We are sorry for what happened to you. On the human level, what, what the ch we're Jewish. If our moral is not what guides us, so why we're even here? Why are we even here? Just to conquer? No. No. My aim is still to live in peace. Even if it will take two more decades. I don't want to give it up. So first of all, this. Secondly, financially. I'm not that young person. I now have to restart everything. What the government gave me is what I gave her back for the social security for my pension fund. Maybe I'm 1,000 plus <laughs> after what they gave me. So I think people don't understand what really happened here and how difficult it is. Um, Has anyone from the government even been here? Yeah, photo up with Elon Musk. The photo op was right there. Ah, we've been there. You saw just yeah. the, the twins, the, where the cradle is there. 
Yeah. I think, look, I, I told you earlier what I realized on 9.30 a.m. October 7th is that we're on our own. By 10 o'clock, I, I read a push from the newspaper on my phone saying, 12 p.m., the cabinet will assemble in the Kriya in Tel Aviv. And this is where I completely, completely put them on the side and I said, this is not where, this is not the people who will save me. Two hours from now, two hours, our people is butchered here. And I didn't, at that point, I didn't have the realization about other kibbutzim. I was so much focused on my community. Imagine what happened in Be'eri, in Iroz, in Achaloz, in Ativa Asara. You know how many people I know that died this day? Around 12, 11 or 12, I see a push from my friends in the on the phone from the Instagram. And there's like, on the Instagram, there's like black screens saying help. He's a dear friend from Be'eri. And his mother is best friend of my parents. He was guarding the door. His wife, three kids, the baby, 10 months old, behind him. The bullet came from the door of the secure room, penetrated him, penetrated the 10 month old baby and wounded the mother. And his mother was murdered too. It just broke my heart. I have this help picture from his Instagram. It's the last thing the person posted. It's... Even when I tell you, it just breaks my heart. And he was such an amazing human being. He brought work to here. He opened a Salesforce office in the road to, to make our region more vibrant, to create employment and and that's it, just this black help screen on Instagram. And nobody came to help. Is there a difference between the responses of the kibbutzim, each one of the individual kibbutzim? Did they respond differently or it's all the same kind of game plan? You mean now and the day after or...? No, no, the day of. Yeah, look, on the border there's uh, 20... 20, more than 23 communities in a few miles from the border and two towns, Sderot, three, Sderot, Netivot and Ufakim. 20 kibbutzim were penetrated, kibbutzim and moshavim, like Netiva Asara, um, and places reacted differently. Near Oz, there was nobody there. Here, there was heroic fighting in Kfaraza, but so many people were murdered. In, the, in different places, there were different things, but you see a lot of similarities in the hero, heroism, heroism of, of people who became heroes. Either the way they saved their family or soldiers who came, like small teams who realized what's happening and said, forget the protocol, we're saving life now. And this is how we were, we were saved. This is how my family was saved eventually. My sister, we will go, get to her house in a few minutes. My sister was saved because Lucy Arish gave coordinates to her husband, who gave coordinates to, uh, to his military squad, 
who came from Zderot here and fetched her after 12 hours from the secure room. Wow. 12 people in a secure room. So you're sitting in Portugal. You're sending coordinates. We're sending coordinates to television all the world. Reporter. Yeah. Who then sends us to her husband, who I believe a, is a singer or an actor. Is a famous actor. Right? Yeah. And then he sends it to his military unit. Yeah. And they come and fetch her. Now, I don't know, I can't even say if the coordinate came from me, because I sent the coordinate for so many right. people. For sure I was with Tal Evram on the phone, and a friend of mine from Israel was with Carmela Menashe. They're all famous commentators on television and radio. Eventually, one thing cut. And this is how she's alive. This is the reason. How long did the army take to get here? So, 9.20, I told you about the armed right. vehicle that we heard. They only got there 90 because they got there three hours. No, they say they, they say that policemen again. I'm telling you, they say they say because nobody nobody have the full picture and it's all under investigation of the police, of the of the military, of the IDF. So we know that in the morning four policemen came to my father's neighborhood, and they could not stand a chance. There were so many terrorists there so early in the morning. And we know that, I don't remember which time, but I think around 10 or 11, I can check for you, there was already Sayeret Matkal and Duvdevan, some, some teams were here. But again, teams against estimated 120 people, right. they said it in Kfaraza, altogether there was 300 terrorists from Saturday early morning until Wednesday, five days until Wednesday, when the place was clean from terrorists. And then on Monday, they caught another one that were hiding and they caught him while he, they found him and caught him. And Eight ten days, days ten days, ten days after. Hiding Monday, here in the kibbutz. Hiding here in the kibbutz. There's a lot of hiding places and there was nobody here, only military. So just imagine how long it took. And my kibbutz was conquered. When I say to you, my heart is like breaking into pieces. My kibbutz was conquered by Hamas terrorists. So when you ask me if, I'm, if I want to stay here, I don't know. I've been carrying the burden for everybody for a long time, and I don't feel it's mutual. Now that I'm by myself, I don't feel it's mutual. Um. But since October 7th, I did two things. One is that I locked in a box all my feelings. The other ones that I locked in another box, all my political and ideologies, yeah. and I decided that I will deal with both of this when I will be ready. And for now, I'm on a survival mode, I'm on a doing mode, yeah. okay? For nine weeks, not a day that I didn't walk and run from here to there to see how I can help my family, my friends, my community, yeah. because we are survivors now. And like I said, we can depend on ourselves and the goodwill of the Israeli people. A lot of people, from brothers in arms to friends in the United States who visited like you. Right. A lot of people that are outreaching what we can do to help you, what we can do to how we can help. What can we do to help you? What you can do to help us? First thing is that the first and foremost 19 people were kidnapped from the kibbutz. 12 were, were returned 
thank God, the mothers, the kids, and some of the young people, and one of the adult people. Seven are still in Gaza. They are not on any priority list, beside the list of our heart. On one of them I babysit. Another one is a dear friend, the mother. Another one is my father's neighbor and a dear friend, and I used to work with them as a nanny in the kindergarten. It's not strangers, so the first, what can you do to help us, is all the time keep the awareness of the kidnapped people, because their time is running. We hear the, the testimonials of people who return, and it, it's heartbreaking, it's heartbreaking. And this is real people, it's not posters, it's ways. They live 100 yards from here, we're gonna go to the rooms in a few minutes. It's hard, you see the mothers, you look at them, and you see a hole here, a hole in the heart. It's, so this is the first thing. The second thing, keep help us. We need the money, we need the help, we need the patient. We need the patient, we need time, slowly, slowly, to connect ourselves together. People just finished to bury their dead. People still waiting for the son and daughter to come from Gaza. It will take time. It's not a Hollywood movie, it's our life and it will take time, you know. Many times I talk to groups who come visit us about there's no PTSD here, there's no post-trauma, because it's an ongoing thing, the rocket. And this was about the rocket, so imagine about 62 people murdered from my community and 19 kidnapped. How do you recover? Some will probably will never recover, and some will, but we need time, and we need patience, and we need you not to turn to the other page. Stay with us, be patient, help us. You're okay? Yeah? He's from New Jersey, he's used to <laughs> This is the Nishkia? It is the Nishkia, it's the weapon storage, the armory. Ah. All the weapons of the first responder unit, the kibbutz member unit, is stored here. Now we know from cameras and from testimonials that around 6.15 it was already seen that terrorists are on the way. And some even say the terrorists are already in the kibbutz. And they are being called here by one of the members of the first responders uh, team to come fetch their uh, weapons and their vest and to get armed. We will see it soon, but this is very, very close to the kibbutz fence from where the penetrated. At that time, like I said, the estimation is that there are tens, between 70 to 120 terrorists in the kibbutz, and they are very well prepared. And when, they, when our people, when our members come to fetch the weapon and arm themselves, they're waiting for them here. So they, they, they estimate that there, there was a terrorist waiting, that the, the a paraglide landed somewhere around here. Over there, right above the roof of my house, there is a terrorist with a machine gun spraying all the area. And whoever trying to come closer, they shoot him. And it's also safe to say, you're next door to the army. It's very safe to say, I think, that had you been home that day, 
you would not have been in a good place. Uh, yeah, I agree. I live by myself. Uh, I never, never managed to close the the, the safe room door. Never, mm. since the day it was built. Over there is my uh, this white, just behind the Bougainvillea. This is my uh, secure uh, secure room. And there were heavy fights all over for hours. Also on Sunday. On Sunday it was on the other side of the kibbutz, near the on the on the other side of my house, near the garbage cans. Were they inside your house? No. But if I was here, I, I wouldn't be standing here talking to you. I just got a message that uh, I, I yesterday I started the process of applying to a. Uh, a license for a gun. Oh wow. Yeah. Um, How does that feel? That there's no choice, that at least I want to be able to have a gun for my, I don't know, own security for, I don't know. It's terrible, I would never think I would do it, but, uh, but I want to have a gun. We've now been in the kibbutz for more than an hour. It's hot outside, and we've seen our share of devastation. Lovely homes with entire walls blown away by RPG rockets. Homes burnt to a crisp. A lifetime of possessions. Family photos and silverware and pillows and cups and stuffed animals all spread out on the lawn, no longer to be claimed by their owners. A reminder of a joyful holiday turned tragic. We saw refrigerators open stacked with spoiled food that won't ever be eaten again. It was tough, tough to see. But the toughest part was ahead of us. Because Chen was now taking us to the young people's neighborhood. Kfar Aza is an old school kibbutz, which means that Chen, like many other kids in the kibbutz, didn't grow up in her parents' home. She grew up in the Bet Yeladim, the children's house, where all the kibbutz's kids slept together with a caregiver, an expression of collective solidarity. When these kids grew up and became young adults, the kibbutz gave each his or her own home, a teeny tiny standalone room to live in just before they got married, settled down, and moved into a bigger home elsewhere in the kibbutz. As you can imagine, the young people's neighborhood used to be the most cheerful spot on the kibbutz. Two rows of squat homes where men and women in their teens and 20s came to listen to music, cook food, enjoy each other's company, and contemplate a sweet future. It's also one of the closest spots in the kibbutz to the border. And the terrorists entering the kibbutz on October 7 knew exactly where they were going. They realized an entire neighborhood of young and strong people posed a big threat. So the young people's neighborhood received particular attention from the Hamas invaders. The houses here are in much worse shape, with some reduced to mere rubble. Each home here still has markings spray-painted on the outer walls by the army, often indicating that inside were human remains. Nearly every home here has a banner with a photograph of a smiling, beautiful young person and the writing, here lived so-and-so, kidnapped by Hamas to Gaza. We turned off our recorder during this part of the visit. Walking into one of the homes whose inhabitants were bound and executed on their couch, you could smell 
even nine weeks after the fact, the strong, sickly sweet scent of spilled blood, the unmistakable smell of death. Josh Cross could take about five seconds before he turned around and ran out. It was a visceral reminder of the magnitude of the carnage. But our visit to Kfar Aza, this may sound ridiculous, but it's completely true, had an unexpected happy ending. Throughout the day, Chen kept telling us that two of her friends were moving back that afternoon, the first family to return home and live full-time in the kibbutz since the attack. And as we were walking over to our car, we saw them, their small car packed with the belongings they carried with them when they were forced to flee their home. And we just had to give them a hug. Uh, okay, your name is Ayelet? Yes. And you lived here in the kibbutz? I was born here. Chen and I the same uh, age group. And today you are the first person to return to live in Fahaz. <laughs> um, it's not a uh, plan to be something uh, big. It's just uh, the way it is. It's just the right moment for us. We were thinking about coming back to the kibbutz from the moment we left. We knew that we, the, mun- the minute we can, we'll come back. And now we just, uh, it, was, it was the right time for us, uh, in, in, for all the things uh, arranged in the right way for us to, uh, the stars was arranged the right way. There was no moment in which you said, you know, knowing everything that I know what happened here on October 7th, I, I don't want to come back. No, never, ever, never. I knew that I will come back even if uh, not forever, to uh, build the kibbutz. This is, the, this is uh, for me, that was obvious from the first moment that I will come back and help the kibbutz uh, start again. The thing is that we don't know who will come back. Maybe I would find the people that would come back um, not my friend, maybe very young people, maybe uh, people that think different from me, I don't know, politically. So maybe I will, I will in the future, I will think uh, that it's not my place anymore. But right now? But right now, to build a place from the ground, it's, um, it was always clear to us that we will come. And also, we really, like, in the really, the, if we go just a few steps down from this uh, very, uh, you know, uh, big talk, we really miss our bed and our couch and our kitchen. And we just want to be home. So uh, what's the first thing you're going to do when you get home? Uh, unpack. Yeah, that's about what I was about to tell you that. Once you've unpacked and... I put the uh, sheets on the bed and lie, to, and lie on the bed. Yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you think others will join you soon? Uh, yes. Yes, I really believe that people wait to the first one that will do it. And I think uh, will, it will take time. It won't be like uh, tomorrow morning. Uh, you know, it's not a movie. 
But uh, yes, I think uh, yeah, there's a lot of people that we talk to that says that they want to uh, come back and they wait to someone to do it and to see that everything is okay. And uh, I think uh, there will be a lot of people that will come back. Yeah. Welcome back home. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Stephanie Butnick, with Liel Leibovitz and Joshua Molina. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. And our team includes Tanya Singer, Courtney Hazlett, and Daron Rusquet, with help from Sam Hacker and Jordana LaRosa. Our team on the ground in Israel was Liel Leibovitz, Josh Cross, Tanya Singer, and Ellie Blyer. Special thanks to Tablet's Armin Rosen. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our logo is by Jenny Rosbrook. Our theme music is by Golem. We love to hear from you. Email us at unorthodoxatabamag.com or leave a message on our listener line, 914-570-4869. Until tomorrow, shalom friends, and Am Yisrael Chai. <laughs>